Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. When we talk about children, spouses, siblings, parents, family, or even friends, we can't help but refer to them as our possession. My son, my wife, my family. We arrogantly refer to individuals the same way that we refer to property. In the biblical tradition, nothing belongs to human beings. Not the land, none of the things in our care, not the people in our path, nothing. And certainly not the children whom the Lord provides. This plays out forcefully in Genesis, where human lines fail until God comes forward to plant a seed for the present generation, which is always in peril. But that seed can only save us when we understand its teaching, namely, that the seed itself does not come from us, does not need us to produce life, and does not belong to us. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. You're listening to the Bible as Literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 229 of the Bible as Literature podcast. So we have finally worked through the genealogy in Matthew and are now transitioning to the rest of the narrative. I think for our listeners, verse 18 forward will seem easier to digest, and in some ways it is. But the lesson of the names, Richard, is that one has to pay attention to the languages. And we were chatting after our most recent episode about the word Obed. Father Paul was talking about Obed as destruction. And when we talk about Obed here in the genealogy, we talked about the very important word, Abd in Arabic, Ebed in Hebrew, which means slave. Now, when I heard Father Paul talk about Obed as destruction, I had to go back to the Hebrew because in the English translations, Obed is Obed is Obed is Obed. But in the original languages, Obed is not Obed is not Obed. They're different words. Right. We have to realize that the Greek is not able to represent the Hebrew accurately in the same way that English is not able. And so what happens is that we get Hebrew translated into Greek, and then from the Greek get the English, and so we're two generations removed. And then a lot of times in English, we actually get another layer of Latin on top. I was explaining to someone from Eastern Europe named Elena that this comes from Greek, Elene. But how come you have Helen in the West and you have Elena in the East? Well, it's because the H, the H, was passed down through Latin, but it wasn't passed down through anyone who got it from Greek later on. When you're dealing with these languages, you have to get down and see where it really came from. In Arabic and in Hebrew, the Ayn is not the same as the Aleph. In English, there's no real way to express the Ayn, so 
they will put an A with a breathing mark in front of it that typically means this is the Ein. But in English, you would pronounce it the same way. Now, in Hebrew and in Arabic, again, you can have the letter Ein, but it could be an A or it can be an O, depending on the vowel that you use to vocalize the consonant in context of the word and of the sentence and in deference to the grammatical system of the language. How can you make that present in English? It's not possible. And so the Obed that we have in the genealogy is in fact, as we said, slave, but the Obed Father Paul is talking about is something different. In the Pentateuch, when it talks about Jacob being the wandering Aramean, that uses the word Obed, that root, Aleph Beit Dalit can either mean wandering or destruction. And so there's a play in the Hebrew there in the Pentateuch, but that's not what we're talking about here in Matthew because it's different when it's talking about the child of Ruth and Boaz. So while you may feel untethered as we finally move past the genealogy, you have to reject that feeling because there are still names in the narrative. There are still words, and we'll come across a couple of words today where the translations are just abhorrent. Words that are intentional and critical that you will miss if you just breathe a sigh of relief and say, oh, we're in the narrative now. I don't feel tripped up anymore by the Hebrew names. This should be much easier. It's not much easier. It might be in some ways spread out, but it's still as technical as before. So Matthew has just given all the Gentiles a crash course in Hebrew, and now he's going to test what you learned. Right, and the genre of the genealogy that we're looking at up to this point makes a lot of assumptions about your knowledge of Hebrew and about your knowledge of the Old Testament. Now it feels like it's not making those same assumptions because the narrative genre that we're moving into now fills in the gaps for you and it tells the story as opposed to just giving hints about a story and footnotes. This is really going to give you the whole story. Now, it actually doesn't give you the whole story. Like you said, Father, don't make assumptions that just because it feels more natural as a genre that you can just use the same thinking cap you used when you read Frog and Toad when you were a little kid. It's not the same kind of story. It's still making a lot of assumptions, and you really do need to know your stuff if you're going to get as much out of the text as you could. A great modern example of the Obed, Obed confusion would be the name Esad in Arabic. You can say Esad or Esad. Now to an American, it just sounds like I'm saying one in regular English and one you're trying to pronounce in the language, Father Mark. No, they're two different names, Esad and Esad. One means happy, the other one means lion. They're different names. How can you express that in English? It's not possible. You can again try to use breathing marks but how many people, when they see breathing marks in the English language, understand them? Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Here in verse 18, we have once again Matthew emphasizing that the seed by which Jesus was conceived is not a human seed. We already know that, but now he's making it clear in a way, reiterating this point, because these were very intelligent writers. The school of writers that put together this genealogy, that architected this genealogy, were teachers. 
And they knew that the Gentiles reading this didn't know Hebrew yet. And so the genealogy is like Hebrew 101, Old Testament 101 for the Roman or the Greek. So now they're coming in and saying, look, in case you missed what happened because you weren't trained to read correctly, let me reiterate the point that when Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before she was with Joseph, that which was conceived in her womb was not from a human seed. And I like you use the word reiterate because so far Matthew has actually trained us to keep our eye out for women who appear in the genealogy because every time a woman has appeared so far, there's been a special intervention by God. And now we don't have an exception. We have something odd that happens here. But what's fascinating is that before the women who were on the margins were, for example, Tamar and Rahab. Tamar, who had to pose as a prostitute, and Rahab, who was in fact a prostitute. And now we have Mary, who is getting pregnant outside of wedlock. So there's something about the straying woman who in fact is fulfilling God's plan. She's not out of the genealogy because of her straying. She in fact is a part of the genealogy because of the special action that was taken through her. And that's what makes this fascinating if we see Mary as not a new thing, but in line with the other women we saw throughout the genealogy. Ruth was another one. So we've got all these women that are lined up as ones who are taking the genealogy a little bit different direction than what we were expecting in a regular old genealogy. The earth is not our goddess. Life doesn't come from the earth. Remember in pagan religion, traditionally and generally, the earth is the mother of life. What scripture is doing is lifting up women in opposition to patriarchy, but at the same time putting women down with men and emphasizing that the Zedah, the seed, does not come from men and life does not come from Mary's womb. It comes from God who puts life there. The way, as Paul explains, God puts the good work in you the word energize that we use in English comes from the New Testament, the ergon, the work. God puts the work in you, an ergon. That's the idea. So you really have to make the effort not to slip into the pattern of thinking that is typical of modern Christians. Mary is not an agent in the conception of the Lord. She is a vessel of the Lord's instruction which is planted in her, the way that you and I are vessels of the Lord's instruction. The other thing we have going on here is this explicit intervention of God through the Holy Spirit. Previously with Tamar and with Rahab, we can infer that God is acting there, but here it's explicit. Before we had these kinds of implicit moves by God, here we have an explicit move. And that's interesting because we are moving from Joseph, the son of Jacob, here as opposed to Joseph, the son of Jacob in Genesis. So we have a reiteration of what was happening in Genesis happening again. We have Jacob, then Joseph. But instead of Joseph bearing Judah, who's going to be the king, we have Joseph bearing Jesus, who's going to be a different kind of king. I'm probably jumping ahead here talking about Jesus, but spoiler alert, they're talking about Jesus being born. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. And here it's important to point out to a modern Western audience that Joseph is acting correctly here. He is not embarrassed of Mary. 
I think Americans hear this uncritically. They receive it uncritically and they assume he's embarrassed because he doesn't want to be associated with someone who had a child out of wedlock. No, Joseph here, insofar as Matthew is declaring him righteous, Joseph is acting correctly to protect and to safeguard the honor of Mary. It's not out of fear. It's not out of embarrassment. It's out of honor that he is acting. And frankly, with all the chaos in American culture around sexuality, we would all do well to think more in terms of shame and honor and less in terms of individual experience and feelings. Because it is shame and honor, if not taken to an extreme, we know that shame has negative connotations for women with respect to their bodies and sexuality. And we have to think about this context also. But proper shame and proper honor, a shared sense of propriety, will always rescue us from the injury that's caused by impropriety. And that's what we're struggling with today. So please don't dismiss verse 19. It's not just the way it was back then. It's something that we can draw on to try to sort through our problems today. Take, for example, Judah. Judah impregnated his daughter-in-law unknowingly. And then once he discovered that his daughter-in-law was pregnant and he knew that she wasn't married, he brought her out as an example to be punished. And that was the moment where Tamar humiliated her father-in-law by saying, this is the one who is the father of my child. And it ended up being her father-in-law. So the honorable thing is what Joseph is doing is putting her away quietly so that she can go and continue on in her father's house as opposed to the scandal that would be created because the community knew that they had not come together yet. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife for the child who has been conceived of her is of the Holy Spirit. Now here, Richard, I want to recall our discussion about Obed and also mention something Father Paul has emphasized in his work, his frustration with the RSV, that the English in the Old Testament translates the word seed as child. Now, our listeners might think it's not a big deal, but it is a big deal because a child comes from you. A seed does not come from you. It's a seed. And in Genesis, God always plants a seed. In Mark, he plants his seed. Here in Matthew, he planted his seed. It's not Joseph's child or Mary's child. In the Greek, That which is conceived of her is of the Holy Spirit. It does not say child. It does not say child. It only refers to that which is conceived. Now you say, Father Mark, well, that's a child. No, you can't insert the word child. It doesn't say it. The Greek uses to, which is neuter, as opposed to o, which is masculine. So it can't be a masculine thing that was conceived. It has to be a neutral thing that is conceived. And sperma is neutral in Greek grammatically. So therefore, it can refer to a seed, but it cannot refer to a boy. So it seems like there's even hinting that it isn't the child that it's referring to, but specifically a seed. So please pay attention to these details. And of course, everyone understands the narrative reference here 
with Joseph's dream. We had the dream of Joseph in Genesis, and that was about how everyone was going to bow down to him. And in this dream, it's about this child not belonging to Joseph, but in fact belonging to God. Moreover, Joseph is referred to here by the son of David. Interestingly, the Lord does not call Jesus the son of David, but the Lord here specifically says, Joseph, you son of David. In some ways, Joseph is continuing this line of David, but the line of David is interrupted because these three verses are all telling us this is not Joseph's child. Joseph did not beget this child. This is not the seed of Joseph. Therefore, it is not the seed of David. And just to be clear, the seed doesn't belong to Mary either. In verse 21, Texate deion, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. But again, it's Texate deion, she will bear a son. So, that which is conceived of her is not from her or from Joseph. She will bear what was conceived of her. And that which was conceived is a son, and his name shall be called Jesus. So they don't even get to name the child. When a parent names a child in Roman society, when you name your son, when you put him on your knee, he becomes the heir. They're not naming Jesus. He doesn't belong to them. It's so critical, especially when we understand that Mary is a metaphor for the community, for the church. That means that Jesus does not belong to us. Please remember this, that Jesus doesn't belong to us. The word of God doesn't belong to us. The Jerusalem above is free. That Jerusalem is for the whole world. So Mary has a duty as God's community to bear the gospel to the world, but it's not her gospel. Understanding this is the beginning and the end. It is the alpha and the omega of what love is. It doesn't possess anything. And instead of the king who possesses, as he said, Judah, and gives birth to this kingly line, we have Joshua, the one who enters into the land, not to own the land, but to inherit the land as it is passed on to them from God. And so as Jesus is used here, the name Joshua, Yehoshua, is the name of the one who will save the people, but save the people by bringing them into the land. Not his land, but the land of God. And so again, this reemphasizes this idea of possession, like you said. It is not a king that will possess the territory of Judah, but is the one who brings the people in to inherit the land that's given to them as a gift from their God, but can also be taken away because he is the one who ultimately owns it. Now, again, I want to recall what we were saying about the names. Jesus is how you say Joshua, Yeshua in Greek. There is no huh, there is no sh, there is no ah in Greek. And so the huh disappears, the sh becomes a sa, and instead of Yeshua, it becomes Yesus, because you have to have an S at the end of a name in Greek. And so you get that S added on, and so Yeshua becomes Yesus. The Greek-speaking person who knows the Bible would immediately make this connection. The serious Roman, or the serious Greek, the one who truly wants to be a disciple of Jesus of Nazareth, hearing this text, receiving this text, and taking the time to work through the genealogy would have stumbled across the story of Joshua in the Old Testament 
And so then this connection would be more potent. I want to keep stressing this point because the more I read Matthew, the more I realize that without the genealogy, Matthew is not one of the four Gospels because he is summarizing and at the same time introducing the Old Testament and the genealogy. And he is also giving you an introduction to basic Hebrew grammar. This chapter cements the New Testament as the next chapter of the Old Testament. It's the invitation to the Gentile to read the Old Testament. It's an invitation to all the nations to come under the law through the Messiah so that all the world would be gathered around the Lord's anointed one in Psalm 2 on Mount Zion. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Now, we mentioned when we were working through the genealogy and discussing Ahaz that in the Hebrew, the sign that is given is very generalized. Women will bear children. Matthew is applying this text to Jesus Christ, to the Messiah. But in Isaiah, to the extent that it's generalized, it's mocking the authority and the power of the ruling class who are not impressed with something that is impressive in God's eyes, which is a mother giving birth to a child. And what the New Testament does is it takes this sign of a woman giving birth and it makes it the right hand of power. It's wonderful how in all this chapter, the women keep undermining the power of the men. That's what they keep doing. And they're not undermining the power of the men in order to simply make the men look like fools, but to make humanity look like fools so that God can be glorified. And that's what's beautiful about this chapter. The women help to manifest this power of God. The other thing I think we need to be careful about is Emmanuel, God with us. God with us is not always a good thing. Sometimes he's got good news and sometimes he's got bad news. Realize that in Hebrew, pakad means visit, but it also means punish. So we get this strange neologism in English that comes from the Bible that God will visit their sins upon them. It doesn't make any sense in English if you really think about it. Visit your sins upon you, it doesn't make sense. What it means is that God's visit might be a punishment. He might have bad news to bring. And so assuming that God with us is good news, don't make that assumption. Realize God with us can be very bad news. Good news in the Bible does not mean good news for you. That's the key. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. So Joseph awoke, did what he was told. And again, in verse 25, Matthew reiterates this basic point so as to avoid any confusion whatsoever, make no mistake about it, he did not come together with her. She gave birth to a son from the seed of God. He married her in order to save her honor. But interestingly, then he is grafted into this genealogy of 
David going all the way back to Abraham. He is not the son of David, but he is adopted as the son of David to begin this new line, this new dynasty. What this text is emphasizing is that this seed was God's. Here in the New American Standard Bible, it toes the line of the entire section that Mary didn't give birth to her son, she gave birth to a son. And in the Greek manuscript that I'm looking at, it's consistent with that translation, but we make the effort when we're doing the podcast, just so our listeners know, to keep more than one Greek manuscript in front of us because there are discrepancies. The Greek manuscript that I'm looking at says her firstborn son, whereas other ones just say a son. So on the one hand, it's saying the son belonged to her, which is never mentioned here. And actually Hebrew doesn't usually talk that way. We don't talk about sons belonging to women. So that's kind of peculiar. So the only reason I can imagine this would be added was to emphasize that this is not Joseph's son. Usually you would say his son, but her son, that's odd. So this zealous scribe added these words. All we know is that it, she gave birth to a son and then we have the story that came before it. Let's keep it simple that way and understand this simpler Greek manuscript as probably the most accurate or the most helpful, at least, for following what the text is saying. I opt for the simpler manuscript in this case for a couple of reasons. First, because it's consistent with the whole first section of Matthew. But I also think, Richard, that there is something here about this question of possessing. Mary doesn't possess Jesus Jesus is not from the seed of Joseph. If Mary is ever emphasized in the way that this zealous scribe wanted to emphasize her, it's not to lift up women or to lift up the community of the church. It's simply to undermine this spirit of entitlement or self-importance that we find in Job. Again, Matthew is emphasizing what the Lord at the end of Job emphasizes, that everything comes from me. So even your mother goddess that you love so much, she can't produce life. It looks to you like the earth is producing life. But that's because your frame of reference for the production of life is the way that men and women come together. In all of the other creation narratives, there was a sexual intercourse between two deities. It's not so in scripture. God speaks and the seed produces life. God is the author of life, and he does not need anything from male or female in order to produce life. And he doesn't need male or female in order to be self-satisfied with what he has done. God is God on his own without us, and life proceeds from his mouth without us. And Joseph is not able to continue the line of Judah, of David. This is where the end of the line comes. At the end, he called his name Jesus, which, as you said, in the Roman household is adoption. But the seed of Judah, the seed of David ends, and it begins with this new son of David, who's adopted in of the seed of God. The line of the earthly David ends, and it's the beginning of the heavenly David, which we know at the end of Matthew what happens to that seed. Jesus does not give birth to earthly children begetting no longer will happen in the same way. That's why when you pray to have a child, you need to pray scripturally that whatever God decides, that he would, for your sake, plant a new seed in your household. 
Take care, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.